You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on July 7th, 2019. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Koritzin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So John Stackhouse Jr. is a Canadian theologian, And he tells the story of one time when he was uh, riding, I don't remember what the vehicle was, but riding with other fellow passengers on a journey. And he had an opportunity to share with one of these fellow passengers about the things that, that he knew to be true from the Bible. And so he was talking to him about theology, talking to him about Jesus, talking to him about the things in the Bible. And at, at one point, the passenger finally interrupted him and said, Who is this Apostle Paul that you're referring to? He had completely missed it with this person. He had started at a place uh, talking about certain things that he assumed this person would know about. And in fact, this person needed to back way up over to here because he wasn't getting what, what John Stackhouse was saying. And what Stackhouse concludes from this is that too much of our Christian witness today concentrates upon trying to convince people that Christianity is true. That's important. Christianity is true. 
but we focus too much attention and energy there, we need instead to consider two prior problems. First, most Americans and Canadians are ignorant of even the basics of the authentic Christian faith. And second, most people think that they do understand Christianity and thus they feel entitled to dismiss it out of hand. We need to back way up to a different starting place because the starting place that we're coming to assumes a background with Christianity, assumes that people know about Jesus, assumes that people have read the Bible and have just rejected it. But that's not the case at all. They're actually ignorant to the faith itself. And this has caused problems in evangelism for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that in prior generations, we could kind of assume that everyone was a Christian already, that everyone was going to church already. It wasn't actually true, but this is what we believe to be true. Um, And so therefore, we didn't really need to do a whole lot with evangelism because everybody already knew about Christianity and was already in a church anyway. That boat has sailed, if it ever did exist. Um, And now the culture and the church don't support one another in the same way that they had in previous generations. Now the culture is largely ignorant of the Bible and Jesus and the gospel. But what we've been left with is a legacy of not evangelizing, assuming everybody already knows about these things. And so no one taught us how to evangelize and we don't know how to do it ourselves. And I include myself among you in this. It's not something that was taught to me and it's not something that I feel entirely competent with, as I'm sure many of you feel as well. Why? Because that's the legacy that was handed down to us. But we do live in a different culture now. We do live in a different time. Circumstances have changed. And so we need some new approaches. We need to rediscover the beauty and the joy of sharing our faith with the people around us. We need to figure out new ways to communicate the truth of this gospel into a world that has no knowledge of it. And so that's why we've set as our vision for this church, loving our neighbors and helping them to find God, love, it's on your bulletins, love God and share God. Helping them to find God, love God, and share God. This is all about evangelism. It's about sharing our faith with the people around us who don't know the gospel. And this comes to us from the teachings of Jesus himself, not least among them, the teachings that came to us in the gospel passage today. Jesus sends 72 of his disciples out in the gospel today, and his words to them as they go out are these. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so Jesus is showing us a couple of things there. First of all, that there's always a harvest around us that's ready to be captured in for the kingdom of God. There are always people around us who are ready to be receptive to the message of Jesus. And the second thing is that it needs to be bathed in prayer. We need to be praying for the people that we're trying to reach, and we need to be praying for more people to help us go and reach them. And as we're praying, we'll also realize that we are among those who are called out into the harvest. We are among those who are charged with the the duty of going and sharing our faith with others. 
And the more we do it, the more comfortable we're going to become with it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray. As we pray for people, we realize that it's not what we do, but what God does in them. It's not our responsibility to convert someone with clever arguments. Our job is to present ourselves as available to be used by God in the midst of that situation, in the midst of that relationship. And God, through us, draws people to himself. But we don't do the drawing, we don't do the converting, we just make ourselves available to be used by God in the situation. And Jesus gives us some helpful advice in the gospel today about how we go about this. And the first thing I think he shows us is the thing he spends a lot of time on right in the beginning, which is our posture. How do we go into this? What kind of a posture should we have? And what Jesus says, we find in in verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So I want you to remember the last time you went away for a trip. Maybe it was a vacation. Maybe it was to go visit family somewhere. Did you bring a suitcase with you? or a duffel bag, a backpack? Did you, did you bring a wallet or a purse with you? Yeah. Did you bring shoes? Assuming you weren't going to the beach. Yeah, you, you bring these things with you because we want to be prepared. We want to be ready for whatever's going to happen. And so we want to make sure our car is ready and we get in our car. We don't want to break down just outside of Jacksonville before we've even gotten on the way to our trip. We want to have money in our wallet. We've saved for our vacation so that we know we have the funds to to feed ourselves and all those things as we're going. Jesus is calling his disciples to a different kind of trip than what they're used to. A different kind of trip than what we are used to. He's saying to go completely unprepared. Well, maybe not completely unprepared, but prepared with prayer prepared with the resources of the kingdom behind us and not relying on ourselves. And what this does for us is two things, I think. The first is having to do with our own discipleship and our own relationship with God. Because when we go unprepared to do ministry, when we go unprepared trusting that God will provide everything we need, then we go in complete reliance on God. And we learn how to trust him And we see him demonstrate his faithfulness to us over and over and over again. And so that builds up our faith. To go unprepared and to rely on God builds up our faith. But it does something else as well. It does something in the midst of the relationship that we have with the people that we are called to reach with the gospel. It calls us to be in need, seeking to have help from the people that we are actually going to serve. And that's different also from the way we normally go about doing things. We usually come from a posture of readiness, from a posture of preparedness, ready to, uh, to share what we have with others and entice them. Jesus is flipping that on its head. He says, you go in need and you bring the thing that they really need, which is the gospel. And Jesus does this himself. If you remember in the Gospel of John, there's a wonderful story about Jesus who meets a woman of Samaria at a well. 
And when Jesus goes there, his, he sits at the well. His disciples get sent off into the town to go and, and buy some food. And so he's there by himself alone with nothing. And what happens? A woman comes. It's the heat of the day around noon. Nobody in their right mind would go to the well at this hour because it's too hot. And this woman has come to the well at that hour because it's too hot and because nobody else is going to be there because she's kind of an outcast. The way she's lived her life has separated her from the people around her and she's afraid of the ridicule. She's afraid of what people might say and she avoids seeing people by going at off hours to this well. And so when Jesus meets her, what does he say? Give me something to drink. Jesus starts his conversation from a position of need. And just those few words, those few words of need, those few words of asking this woman for something, gives Jesus the opportunity to start a conversation and speak into her life. Ultimately, she comes to see that Jesus is the one who was to come, that Jesus is the Messiah. Comes to see that Jesus has living water to offer her, that is far better than the water that she came to that well to seek that day. Being in a posture of need is a great way to keep from sounding preachy. Now, I'm not against preaching. In fact, I'm doing it right now. But our culture seems to have something against being preachy or being preached at is usually how they they talk about it. What is the objection, really? The objection is to finger-wagging. The objection is to to Bible flapping. The objection is to people standing in a posture of superiority over them and telling them, presuming that we know what they need. And people take offense at that. And in fact, sometimes it actually can be offensive. Being in a posture of need puts us in a different position. It puts us in a humble position. It puts us in a different standing with the people that we're reaching out to. People can get defensive when someone tells them about Jesus from a posture of superiority. And evangelism usually goes better from a posture of humility. And so going in need puts us in that posture of humility, whether we want to be there or not. I don't like being in need. I don't like asking for help. But this forces us into it. When we go in a posture of need, it gives us an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power and for us to demonstrate humility among those we seek to serve. So that's one thing. Jesus says that we should go in need. The second thing, this is the one I really like. Jesus says, you got got to eat. Who likes to eat? I see some hands here. Who likes really good food? Yeah, some hands there. Good. Excellent. You are all qualified evangelists. Excellent. Go. It's one of the main tools that Jesus gives us is eating. Why is eating so important? Jesus was always eating with people. In fact, he ate with people so much that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was always hanging out at parties. He was always hanging out with people in social settings. Why? Well, for one thing, that's where the people were. He was going to where the people were. But also, when we eat and drink with people, we engage in relationship with them. It allows for a depth of relationship beyond the simple, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. 
hot outside today. Oh yeah, it's really hot. Okay, see you later. Goodbye. That's how so many of our conversations go in a day. Just think about how many times you have exactly that same conversation every day of your life. But it's hard to have that conversation. You can start there, but it's hard to have that conversation for more than about 10 seconds. And that's really the point. We're too busy. We want to keep moving. But when we sit down to eat with someone, when we sit down to have a cup of coffee with someone, when we sit down and have a real conversation with them, it builds our relationship with them and it gives us an opportunity to speak into each other's lives. Some of the best conversations that we have are over a meal or a good cup of coffee. Sharing food builds relationships. And sharing the gospel is not just about sharing information. If it were, the best thing to do would be to just send out a lot of emails, get everybody's email address, send them the information about the gospel, and then our job is done. But that's not the way that God desires for this message to be delivered. Certainly we can use those as tools in the process of evangelism, but God wants evangelism to happen through relationships. In fact, this is how God approached humanity. Jesus took on human flesh and left the glory of heaven to come be among us. To take a posture of humility, it says in the letters of the Philippians, and to be able to have human flesh so that he could have conversations with people, have relationships with people, give people a hug. And in that relationship, Jesus was able to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we can do the same thing. Following Jesus' example, when we have relationships with people, when we take time to slow down and eat with people or drink coffee with people, we have an opportunity to, deep, to develop deeper relationships that open the way to deeper conversations about things like Jesus and the gospel. Developing a friendship builds trust, and it gives you the ability to be heard on a deeper level. So that's kind of the posture that we need to go in. We need to go in a relational posture. We need to go in a humble posture. We need to go in a posture of need and reliance on God and the people around us. But what are we supposed to do when we get there? Jesus, again, gives us a couple of clues to this in the gospel today. The first thing has to do with healing. What we read in the gospel today is not the first time that Jesus sent out people on a similar mission. At the beginning of the chapter before this, chapter 9, Jesus sends out not the 72, but the 12, the apostles. And he gives them very similar words about going in a posture of need. But when he commissions them, he says this. He called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So he gave them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons, and then he sent them to go proclaim the kingdom of God. And similarly, in the gospel today, we see the disciples doing similar things. We hear them talking about casting out demons, and Jesus tells them that as they go, they are to heal the sick in that town. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So we know Jesus has given these 72 disciples the same mission that he gave the 12 to begin with. Heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. Why do those things go together? Prayer is one of our values at Good Samaritan. We demonstrate this in a number of ways. 
We have healing prayer at the, the station over here during communion every week as an opportunity for you to go and receive prayer for whatever is going on in your life, but especially for prayer for healing. At the food giveaway, one of the most important things I think we do is take time to share the gospel with people, preaching the word to them, but then we also take time to walk around the room and pray for people. And we pray for all kinds of needs. It's a wonderful opportunity to minister in this way. Do you feel comfortable praying for people out loud? I haven't always felt comfortable praying for people out loud. When I first started doing it, it was kind of a, an awkward, nervous-making experience. I could get like a, a little knot in my stomach, and I didn't feel so good about it, and I wasn't sure what I was supposed to say or how to say it or if the right, right words would come out. But over time, through practice, it's become much more comfortable for me. When you pray for someone, remember that prayer is just talking to God. Just like I talk to you, and you talk to me, and you talk to your family and your friends, you have conversations, you have relationships. And prayer is just the same thing, except the person we're talking to is God. And so we don't need fancy words for God. In fact, Jesus says that we shouldn't heap up empty words. He says the purpose of heaping up empty words in our prayers is just to puff ourselves up and to puff ourselves up in front of other people. So we don't need to have pretentious words to pray to God. We just have to share what's on our heart with God. And when we pray for someone else, we're bringing them before God and we're talking to God on their behalf. It's a really simple, easy thing to do. It's a great way to care for someone. And so when someone shares something that's going on in his or her life, you can offer to pray for them. And not just, oh yes, I'll pray for you. And then maybe we do or maybe we don't pray. Hopefully you do, because if you promise to pray, you, you really should follow through on that promise. But how much more powerful if you just say, well, could we just take a moment to pray right now? And then lift that person up wherever you are, in the grocery store, at the school, at work, wherever you are. And that shows that person that you are fulfilling that promise, but you also come before God together. People are often more receptive to receiving prayer than they are to a conversation about the gospel. And then the prayer can open the door to gospel conversation. Even the prayer itself can just open the door to conversation, but when people see the power of God demonstrated through prayer, when they experience healing, when they experience God's provision, when they see things begin to change in their life, that demonstrates to them that God is real and that he's powerful and it makes them curious. And that too opens the door for conversation about the gospel and can lead them into relationship with Jesus Christ. Luke 10, 9. Heal the sick in that town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. When you pray for someone, you demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God right there in that place. If that's something you're interested in knowing more about, Ken can tell you more about Christian Healing Ministries, which has wonderful series of training on how to pray for people in healing prayer and how to, to do this kind of work, praying for people. It's a great ministry, and Ken is great at it. So you can talk to Ken or talk to me, talk to Deacon Stephen or Mother Carrie. Any of us would be happy to share with you about that work. 
So that's one of the tools that Jesus gives us. He says, go and pray for people that they might be healed, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom of God. But another tool that we have is our own story. Our own story of what God has done in our lives. We read Psalm 66 today, and uh, we didn't read all of it. But in the latter part of Psalm 66, verse 15, it says this. Come here and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. Come here and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. What the psalmist is saying here is that the Lord has done great things for him, and he wants to tell everyone else about it. When we share our stories about what God has done in our lives, it builds people up. It builds ourselves up. It builds the church up but it can also build up the people around us who don't know Jesus. It can be a powerful way for them to grasp and understand the power of the gospel. You don't need to know everything about the Bible and theology to share your faith. That's something that concerns people sometimes when they're just getting started with evangelism. They think that they have to to know the Bible better, that they have to uh, study theology more, that they have to have answers to every question that a possible person might ask when they're engaging in a conversation like this. And certainly, I'm not going to discourage you from studying the Bible or studying theology. I think that would be a good thing. And the more you do it, the better off you'll be. However, you don't need to know everything about the Bible and theology to start sharing your faith with people. You don't have to have all the answers to the questions that people might ask. All you need to do is be able to tell the story of what God has done in your own life. When we go back to that story about the woman at the well in the Gospel of John, after she's come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, she goes from there and she goes back into the town, back to all those people who had rejected her, back to all those people she was scared of, scared of their condemnation, scared of their conversations, scared of the things that they might say. And in John chapter 4, verse 40, this is what she says to them. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. No, that's wrong. Uh, 39, verse before. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And here was her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That's what made all these people come to believe in Jesus. This woman's simple story about how Jesus told him, told her, all that she had ever done. People can argue about theology and they can argue about the Bible and whether or not it's true until they're blue in the face. And so sometimes getting into an intellectual battle with somebody about the nature of truth is not really the best way to convince them of the truth of the gospel. It's hard to argue with someone's personal testimony about what God has done. Because then we're not talking about whether or not the Bible is true. We're talking about whether or not the things that you say are true. And if you already have a relationship with this person, if they've already come to trust you, then you've already developed credibility with them and your story should seem credible to them as you tell it. So what has God done in your life recently? 
Where have you seen him at work? Just take a moment to think about that. Where has God provided for you? Where has he demonstrated healing in your life? This could be the big story of how you came to meet Jesus in the first place. Or it could be a smaller testimony about some specific incident that God has done recently in your life. And now if you've got one of those stories in your mind, ask God who it is that he wants you to share that story with. Who would benefit from hearing what God has done in your life? A Christian author named Gloria Furman uh, says this. Sometimes we, we have a fear of evangelism. And so she's trying to address our fears of evangelism. She says, We think we're chasing happiness when we follow our fearful heart. But fear sabotages our joy every time. Ironically, fear keeps us from enjoying an act of worship that actually grows our zeal for Jesus. When we shrink back in fear and refrain from sharing our faith, our dampened zeal then makes us feel that we might be faithless phonies. Next, our feelings of faithlessness then make us feel ashamed and guilty. And finally, our feelings of guilt feed our fears and close our mouths and never even start talking about the Lord. Fear is a vicious cycle. And I think that's very true. There are all kinds of things that people might be fearful of. Maybe it's the fear of not knowing enough, like we just talked about. But I think more often it's the fear of rejection or the fear of causing offense, which is really connected to the fear of rejection. In the gospel today, Jesus says this, verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. When we share the gospel with someone, there is a possibility that they're not going to respond positively to it. That they might say, oh, that's not for me. Most of the time, they're not going to be outright hostile about it. Most of the time, they'll just say something like, oh, I'm not interested, or oh, that's not for me. And that can hurt, because we're sharing something that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's <coughs> valuable to us, something that means a lot to us, and it's deeply on our heart to share it with them. But when that happens, we need to remember that it's not us they're rejecting, it's Jesus they're rejecting. It's not us they're rejecting, it's the message of the gospel that they're rejecting. And even in the midst of that, they still might be deeply in love with you as a person. They might still value your friendship. In fact, I think they probably will value your friendship. They've just decided to reject Jesus. And so when that happens, what we can do is just go back to our prayer closet and keep praying for them that the right opportunity would come along for us to share the gospel with them, or that the things that we've said would take root in their lives and eventually bear fruit, either with us or with someone else. Paul said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And sometimes it takes multiple interactions with multiple Christians for the gospel to bear fruit in someone's life. Rejection will happen. In the parable of the sower, not all of the seed ends up germinating and turning into, into good fruit. Only a small portion of it does. But we need to be willing to go into that harvest and scatter that seed. 
when we're fearful, we can remember that God is not a God of fear. In the epistles, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And in another place, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. Fear comes from the enemy. The enemy's goal is for us to shut our mouths and not say anything about the gospel because the enemy would like nothing more than for the gospel to be squashed and not spread and for the kingdom of God not to expand. But that's not our fear to accept. That's Satan's fear. And we need to say, no, thank you. We have a God who casts out all fear. We have a God who gives us a spirit of power and love and self-control. And so you can keep your fear, Satan. We want to share the gospel from a posture of care. If people know that you're a Christian and they know that you believe that only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved, what does that tell them if you choose not to tell them about Jesus? If they know that you think that they are in spiritual danger and you don't say anything about it, what does that tell them about your relationship with them? It might send a message that you're not actually loving them, that you don't care that much. But what if you approach them and say something like, I don't presume to know where you are with God, but I care about you and I want good things for you. And the best thing I know is a living relationship with Jesus. And if that's something you'd like to know about, I'd be more than happy to tell you more. I think it would be hard to be offended by a statement like that. And if they are, that's okay. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. Wait for the right moment, but don't wait too long or you may never do it. I want to conclude with a, a final word that comes from Jesus' final words when these disciples return. When they come back after their missionary journey, they are filled with joy. This is what it says. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You can hear the excitement in their voice. Now Jesus gives them a gentle rebuke. He says, don't be excited about the fact that the demons respond to you. Be excited that your names are written in heaven. But even still, you hear the joy and the excitement in their voices. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen people healed of all kinds of diseases. They've seen people respond to the message of the kingdom of God. And they're excited about it. And it is exciting. It is exciting to see someone have a hard heart that melts at the news of God's good news for them. And their hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. That's an exciting thing. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus says that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. And what that means is that every time a sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. And when we participate in helping that sinner come to a place of repentance, we get to be a part of that party. We get to rejoice with all the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven as they're having a heavenly party for this sinner who's repented. And we get to share in that joy too. We get to join in the heavenly joy that comes with it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let us be among those who go out into the harvest. Let us be among those who share the good news with the people who are starving for it. 
Let us be among those who share living water for thirsty hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into this world and took on human flesh, that he might proclaim your kingdom to our hearts, that he might die and take our place on the cross so that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for the treasure that you've given us in the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring to mind even now the people that you are calling each of us to reach. We pray, Lord, that you would open doors, that you would soften hearts, that you'd give us words to say in those situations and conversations. Lord, we want to see that harvest. We want to see that heavenly joy. Help us to be obedient, Lord, and help us to see your harvest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.